edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson. See, in the biblical story, the body is not something to be done away with, to be rejected, even now in this life, but to be redeemed, to be resurrected and born anew along with the rest of the creation. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection is a cornerstone or pillar of the Christian faith. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34, in a message titled, Practice Resurrection. Now, here's Pastor Char. We're coming to the end of our teachings through 1 Corinthians. And I don't know about you, but I feel that this has been an incredibly appropriate time to just be led through these teachings on 1 Corinthians. I think it's been helpful clarifying to know what it means to be a disciple in this cultural moment. And so I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Um, I think it's good to remind ourselves that this letter was written to a local church. And this local church lived in the middle of the Roman Empire. It's very similar in many ways to our own modern world. And just like any church in any time and place, there were victories and there were defeats. There were clear evidences of God's presence and work among this church, as Paul affirms again and again. And there were also glaring inconsistencies, just ways in which their former lifestyle, their pagan practices had so just taken deep root in their lives and in their community. We know that it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe that there were all sorts of issues going on in this local church. There were social issues, there were sexual issues, there were spiritual issues issues going on, and the members were divided against one another, and they were divided against Paul. And I've said this again and again, though Paul addresses each of these issues in turn, they're just symptoms of the deeper issue, and that is that the Corinthians had failed to understand the real-life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. And you know what? Actually, as I was studying through 1 Corinthians 15 this week, I realized each week I have taught and got up here, I talk about you know, the real-life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. But that's only half the story. The full story is Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. And there are huge implications when we only have half of the story, or when we only emphasize half of the story. Now, each study that I've taught through this series, I've also read this quote from Leslie Newbegin, where he says, the choice of the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? And we've been acknowledging in each of our studies that this community of believers were not reflecting the values 
the practices and culture of the kingdom of God and its King Jesus, but were a reflection of values, mores, and habits of the culture of the day. And here, in the middle of chapter 15, Paul specifically notes that the Corinthians are under an outside influence when he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So the Corinthians were, in fact, being influenced by the culture around them, maybe even some teachers within their midst. And they were, again, reflecting the culture around them and not God's kingdom. It's honestly a bit surprising to me that Paul did not start the letter with this issue of denying the resurrection or even referencing it before now. Like, I'm a very sarcastic person just by nature, maybe a little bit by nurture, um, But, you know, if I was writing this pastoral letter, I would just be kind of sending these, like, passive-aggressive little remarks at every end of each section, you know, like, well, this is why. And, you know, if you only, since you deny the resurrection, I would just be jabbing it in as often as I could. But Paul really doesn't do that so much. But if you look back in the letter, you can see how this denial of resurrection really has affected so much of their practice and lifestyle leading to sin, leading to unrighteousness and injustice. Everything from their pride and exaltation of themselves over others. They have a perverted, over-realized eschatology. They think they're ruling and reigning, but they're not ruling and reigning in the posture of the crucified king. To the misuse of the body. Remember, he says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord will raise up the body. What you do with your body matters, and it matters eternally, Paul says. Going on to the greed and self-seeking and self-preservation, thinking only of themselves and their comforts, claiming their rights above the conscience of others, and so on. They are not living as a reflection of what is to come. They're getting while the getting's good. They're claiming rights for themselves rather than looking forward to the hope that is to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the truth is, is that what we believe affects our practice and lifestyle greatly. And we'll come back to this in the end of our study. But first, I want to begin by talking about the consequences of denying the resurrection. So after rehearsing again the gospel story and account that Paul preached to the Corinthians, the message he says that they received and believed and by which they were being saved, Paul now moves into challenging them on this issue of denying the resurrection. In in sections 12 through 19 and 29 through 34, we're going to take all of these together. Paul shows the illogical thinking behind the Corinthians' claim. And I really appreciated the way that Paul is just willing to go all the way with the Corinthians. It's, It's like he's saying this, all right, fine. You really think this is true? You really believe this? Then let's go there. Let's play out this scenario. And so what Paul does is with this rhetorical, if this, then that argument through this whole chapter. So here we go. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, the gospel message that he laid out and they believed is completely irrelevant and empty if Christ is not raised. 
Not only that, but Paul's whole life, his whole ministry of bearing witness to the gospel, everything that he suffered for the gospel, his facing of constant danger. He references dying daily and fighting with beasts at Ephesus. These are references just to some of Paul's sufferings. We know that he mentions more in 2 Corinthians. But all of this makes Paul at best self-deceived and at worst a total lunatic, just a madman with rantings and ravings about some Jesus who actually isn't risen from the dead. On top of that, Paul says, the dearly departed of the Corinthian community are just gone forever. That's the end. No point in mourning. No point in caring. No point in being baptized, whether in order to see them again or in order to make up for that individual's lack of baptism, really depending on what the interpretation of this passage actually is. See, Paul's whole point in this is to say, Corinthians, your lives are a double standard. You're a living contradiction if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And no part of the faith the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So Paul takes it so far to say, if you really, truly believe that there is no resurrection, be consistent. If Christ is not risen, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is Paul saying? He's basically saying, if there is no resurrection, then YOLO. You only live once. You better get while the getting is good. You better live this life to the fullest and give yourself completely to hedonistic pursuits if there's no resurrection. It seems that the Corinthians made the mistake of thinking there were certain pieces of the story of God that had been passed on to them that they could simply do without, specifically the resurrection. And if you know a bit about Greco-Roman thought, you can actually understand why. See, in that culture, in that day, resurrection was seen as completely ridiculous because of their view of the body and absolutely unwanted in their culture. The Greeks believed in what's called the eternality of the soul. Your soul is the real you. And your body doesn't actually express who you are. We're seeing the return of this Gnostic thought even today. There are people in our culture now who say, my body actually doesn't tell me anything about who I am. It's not a true representative of me. I'm actually a soul trapped inside this body. And so they manipulate their bodies. They try to change their bodies in order that their body would reflect what they feel or who they believe themselves to be deep inside. Rejecting the body because it's evil, because it's broken, because it's flawed. The Greeks believed the body was a prison for the soul and only on death would they be released from these fallen, broken bodies, this fallen, broken world, and they would be released as an eternal soul into the eternal cosmos. But here's where the biblical worldview contradicts this. See, in the biblical worldview, the creation is not evil. The creation is good, intrinsically good. Remember, in the creation story, good. God says, good, 
God says. Good, God says. And again and again, that on the last day, the sixth day, when he looks at male and female, what does he say? It is very good. The body is, in fact, very good, made by the one true God who is himself goodness. Though the creation at this moment is still under the subjection of death and decay through sin because of Adam and Eve's rebellion to God, the body is good, made by God, made for God, made to reflect God's glory, goodness, and righteousness. See, in the biblical story, the body is not something to be done away with, to be rejected, even now in this life, but to be redeemed to be resurrected and born anew along with the rest of the creation. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection is a cornerstone or pillar of the Christian faith. If you take it away, not only do you lose the resolve and the completion of the story of God, which we'll talk about in a minute, you actually have a crumbling faith. I think some people imagine that certain Christian doctrines are almost like a game of Jenga. How many of you guys are familiar with Jenga? You played this game, right? My kids love this game just because of the you know, excitement, anticipation, your anxiety rises. And when I pull out that piece that brings everything down, my daughter cheers every time, right? That it happened to me and not her. But Jenga, you can pull pieces out, even foundational pieces out, and then it's like, oh, you know, there it is. It's kind of wobbling a little bit, but the structure still stands. Some people imagine that Christian doctrine is like that. Pull all the pieces out, and it still stands. Look, no problem. But in fact, these key doctrines are more like a house of cards. You pull one out, and the whole thing comes crashing to the ground. This is because the Bible is a story. It's a complete story about God's rescue and redemption. Paul will go on to show them that the resurrection of Jesus is both absolutely essential to this story, to the resurrection of humanity and the destruction of death itself, which keeps us from the life that is in God. See, Jesus' resurrection is the vindication of God's faithfulness to the creation to the world he so dearly loves. This is proof that God is committed to us, that he will not leave us, that he will not scrap the whole project in the middle. Paul's big idea, I think, is that the biblical redemptive story is one whole package from creation to new creation, from the tree of life in the garden to the tree of life in the new Jerusalem. If you mess with that, you lose everything. If this, then that, Paul argues. Now, I personally believe that the church in the Western Hemisphere, by and large, has failed to tell the biblical narrative in a correct and a compelling way. We have done a disservice to the doctrine of the resurrection in that we, just like the world, try to preserve and distort and manipulate our bodies in a way that does not honor the physical body that has been given by God as a good gift to be received. And we have failed to paint a proper biblical picture of God's future world so that people no longer even want it. 
we actually believe and practice similarly to the Greeks. At least this is often how we talk. We talk of the eternality of the soul, disembodied spirits living in the clouds or heaven, plucking on harps, singing holy, holy, holy for all eternity. How boring. It's no wonder that some would rather stay in this world if they've been dealt a good hand or fly off to a disembodied existence in the skies if they haven't. But as always, God has something better. God has resurrection and new creation in store for his people and for the creation. Now, as I was studying this, I was just thinking through this I'm just trying to speak honestly. I am often hard-pressed to find a Christian who believes in a resurrected body and actual physical new creation on earth or who even wants it. And I believe that this is because we've sold ourselves short on what this new world is. The new world is God's kingdom come to earth. See, in the biblical story, The kingdom of God meant a guaranteed new heaven and new earth, or renewed heaven, renewed earth, a healed material creation, a physical creation, not a disembodied, not a specter cosmos or a specter human. It meant absolute wholeness and well-being physically, spiritually, socially, and economically. It's a world that's not emptied, but filled up with glory, we're told. We're heading for that biblical vision where the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The creation is a vessel not waiting to be emptied of life, but to be filled with God's life, his glory, and his goodness. That is what is to come for God's people in the new creation. You see, the kingdom of God was bound up with the Old Testament concept of shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of war. It is the positive presence of peace and glory from God that permeates every part of the creation. The prophets foretold that the kingdom of God was fully established when all that is broken and wrong with the world is mended and made right. And so it was bound up with ideas like Poverty, oppression, misery, and sin, and all of those various forms being brought to an end. Remember, the biblical vision is of the mountains being brought down and the valleys being lifted up. There is this restoration. There is everything being put in its right place, being filled up and brought down, a leveling. It was envisioned that it would be a kingdom a world of absolute flourishing, prosperity, and blessing. This is the world that our good and faithful God has in store for those who belong to him. And yet time and time again, I find that we we sell ourselves short on this. But in the resurrection lies the hope of the whole world. This is what every human being is longing for to be reunited with the creation, for everything to be put in its right place, to be filled up with the glory of God. 
Therefore, the resurrection is the hope of the whole world, the thing that all of creation groans and waits eagerly for, the restoration of the sons of God, the shalom of God filling the earth. Many of us don't even realize it, but this is what we're longing for. This is what we're searching for, to be reunited in the order, the right order of all things, and to be filled up with the glory of God. Now, Paul goes on, as he's argued the implications of what happens if Christ is not crucified and risen again. Now he wants to bring the Corinthians in the opposite direction. Let's talk about the implications of Christ's resurrection. So he's argued this. He's going to use the same rhetorical device here, if this, then that. So let me just say this. The resurrection was God's master plan to combat and totally reverse Adam's disastrous rebellion against God. The resurrection of Jesus is key to God's promise to redeem his broken creation and to reclaim the earth as his good kingdom. Paul explains Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. What he's referencing is back in the law of Israel. The first fruits, the first batch of the harvest was to be brought to God and it was dedicated or offered to him. And in this, it was in this sense, the first fruit, it like, separated or set apart the whole harvest. It implied or promised further fruit. The first fruits was as if it were a sample of the crop indicating both the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. And so Paul's using this as a metaphor to tell us about Christ's resurrection and our own resurrection. What he means is that Christ's resurrection was a foretaste of what is to come for all believers. It guarantees it, both in nature, a body, and in quality, a body that is more physical, more solid than our physical bodies, a body made to inhabit both heaven and earth. And so Paul, he argues this, you know, just as we were in Adam and now all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then he comes back again to this idea of first fruits to show us that this is not just a metaphor for how it will happen, but also tells us about the sequence, the timeline. He says, the order is Christ's resurrection, then those who belong to Christ. And this is after Christ's people have been resurrected that death itself will be destroyed the last enemy, and then the end comes. When Jesus has defeated every enemy, and finally he will hand over the kingdom to the Father, and everything will be in its right place. God will be all in all. Now, I talked about this first service as well, but I likened it to, you know, like those Russian Matryoshka dolls? You know how you got the big one and then you got the little one and you got the next one. It goes all the way down, right? It's almost like there's this ordering of things, but the end is the reordering, kind of putting everything back into its right place. So in the creation, all this stuff was dealt out, but in the recreation, God will gather it all up under himself. We know that the Son of God was sent into the world by the Father because of the love of God to redeem and rescue the world. He rules as the rightful king over the earth, and he must rule, we're told, until his enemies are brought and made his footstool. But once that is complete, Christ 
the son will hand the kingdom over to the father, that God might be all in all. See, in a sense, Christ will do what Adam failed to do. In Genesis, God uses kingdom language. Adam and Eve are kings and queens meant to rule and reign over God's good creation, and they're meant to spread God's kingdom over all of the earth. of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, One Minute Answers to Skeptics, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions by Charlie Campbell. Learn how to give a defense for the faith in a conversational style and strengthen your own confidence in the existence of God and the reliability of the Word. The book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from our guest pastor, Char Broderson, as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.